Welcome to the Everyday Saint Podcast, brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media. Here, we meet with authors who share highlights of their latest book and the backstory to its creation. I'm your host, Richard Bernard. Linda Cherry joins us today to discuss how she came to write her latest book, Judah and Joseph Reunited, The Hope of Israel. Linda is the author of books covering ancient Israel. They include a Passover Seder script for Christian families, the feast and festivals of the Messiah, and the redemption of the bride. We had a wonderful time reviewing the history of Judah and Joseph and then discussing why it's important that they be reunited. With her background in evangelistic Christianity, her love of the Jewish people, and her desire to gather all into the family of covenant Israel, she possesses a unique perspective that greatly enhances her work. And now, here's Linda. Linda, welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? Well, thank you, Richard. It's so nice to be part of the Cedar Fort family and to talk with you today. I'm doing great. Thank you. And we are on a different time zone. So where are you? I live in Seattle, Washington. Well, actually, I live in a in a suburb called Duval, Washington, which is about oh, 30 minutes or so from Seattle proper. Okay. And um, you've recently wrote a book called Judah and Joseph Reunited. And I stumbled on that word be- not only because I'm dyslexic, but <laughs> because... If it says reunited, there had to be a time they were united. So can you tell us about that? Yes, thanks for asking, and thanks for having me on your podcast about this book, Richard. I had a really profound experience in writing it. I was actually in the process of writing my third book um, uh, for Cedar Fort uh, when I started having dreams about this book. And I haven't had that experience before, I have to admit, but I saw paragraphs from this book in my dreams and you know where they were literally written out where when I got up in the morning I just felt compelled to start recording some of those paragraphs Uh, this is not a book that had particularly been on my mind previously um, but I have to say that it really uh, came on my heart in a very heavy way because of the experience of those dreams in the sense when you're saying they must have been united at one point Uh, The book actually begins with the story of the brothers Joseph and Judah, the sons of Jacob, who was named Israel, and their experiences together, and specifically their patriarchal blessings that they received from their fathers, or excuse me, from their father Jacob. A lot of us don't realize that the specific blessings that were given to each of those sons are still active today in their posterity. So today, when we receive a patriarchal blessing from a patriarch in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I'm told that the most important thing that they're going to do in giving us a patriarchal blessing is they're going to identify which tribe we are from. So why is that important? I think it's important because when we go back to look at those patriarchal blessings, we will see that each of the tribes were given specific responsibilities, specific character descriptions. And for Judah and Joseph, they were the two that were given leadership blessings in the house of Israel. And important leadership blessings, one could not supplant the other. 
For Judah, he was given the blessings that the kings of Israel would come through his lineage down to and including the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ. Joseph was given the birthright blessing, which included the the birthright blessing of being the priesthood leader for the family. That's a lot different than most of us think about. When we talk about birthright blessings, we usually think about how much land is this person getting? How much money are they getting? How much exercise of power are they going to be controlling their family with? But the truth is, is the birthright blessing is modeled after the birthright son of our Father in heaven, who is Jesus Christ. And that birthright priesthood blessing implied that that particular leader, that particular son, was going to use all of those um, material blessings that were given to him to bless the family according to their wants and needs. Even think the law of consecration in terms of he had a responsibility to take care of his family, not only in temporal areas, but also in spiritual and, and in emotional areas as well, even as we see Jesus Christ fulfilling that role of the Father. And so it was that Joseph was given this very heavy responsibility that he was to look out, out for the welfare of all of his family. And we see that today, and we might want to take a, a few steps in between, but we see that today when we see that many members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have been identified as being from the tribe of Ephraim, uh, who is Joseph's firstborn birthright son. It's interesting in the scriptures, we get confused. Were there 13 sons or were there 12 tribes? <laughs> and we're told by Moses and by um, Jethro and by others is that actually uh, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh are counted as one tribe. So today that responsibility of the priesthood leadership responsibility for caring for all of Israel and all the brothers of Israel is still very active in those who are descendants of Joseph today. Whether they are DNA blood descendants or whether they are identified as being from those tribes today through the patriarchal blessings doesn't matter. We still have that strong responsibility and we see it really manifest in the prophet Joseph Smith, who was identified as being from the lineage of Joseph and also of whom Joseph prophesied in uh, before his death, Joseph of Egypt prophesied of one who would be raised up in the latter days and would have an important work of gathering the children of Israel together. Joseph of Egypt identified that that person would be called Joseph and that his father would also be named Joseph. So we believe as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that those who are of this tribe of Joseph or Ephraim and Manasseh have a particular responsibility to be looking out for gathering and caring for the rest of Israel. Now, you asked me a question about had they been, uh, had they had they not been united at any time? Right. The fact is, is that from the very beginning, because they both did receive these patriarchal blessings of leadership, it caused a lot of confusion in the family. Before I go further, I want to really underscore the fact that there's no such thing as a throwaway tribe. Every single one of the tribes is essential in our Father's plan. And in fact, that's really manifest for us by uh, what John saw in the book of Revelation, 
when John saw the celestial city that will uh, take place during the millennium, he saw a gate that had the name of every single one of the tribes over each of those gates. Mm -hmm. So every single individual, every single tribe is of utmost importance. But what we're talking about here is that the two specific sons are brothers that were given leadership responsibility for the rest of Israel, and that's Judah and Joseph. So there was confusion from the very beginning. There was enmity from the very beginning. We know the story of Joseph receiving the coat that represented that, in fact, the father had chosen him for the birthright. That coat, we learn, really is a sign or signia of the priesthood. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same Hebrew name as the garment that would later be worn by the high priest. And so here we have the younger brother who's having dreams about the fact that his other brothers are going to kneel down to him. And they don't like his stories, and they don't like him. <laughs> well, I and so they don't like him. Yeah. And so they have determined that they're going to get rid of him. And uh, as you know, when he went out to check, he'd been somewhat of a tattletale on his brothers, saying they had not been taking good care of the sheep and the responsibilities that their father had given them. And when they saw him coming, they decided that they were going to put an end to him. And they uh, put him in a dry well. And they were determined, actually, that they were going to kill him. But two of the other brothers did not want him to be killed. One was Reuben. Reuben had in the back of his mind, and Reuben would technically have been the one that everyone would think would get that birthright blessing, mm -hmm. the firstborn. So he had particular reason to, to be chafing under a Joseph's appointment. But Reuben had determined in his mind that basically once the other ones kind of burned out their anger, he was going to go back and get Joseph out of this pit and bring him back home. But in the meantime, Judah saw that there were some uh, traitors coming, and he determined that, in fact, to save Joseph's life from the others, he was going to sell Joseph, and he sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, um, which then was the price of a slave. Now, the big question, would Joseph hold on to his covenants? You know, he was still a young man. Many think he was a teenager, maybe even like Nephi, perhaps 17, in ages 17 to 20, very young man. He's going to a foreign country. What's going to happen to his birthright? And can I point out that while everybody else was jealous at the thought that the birthright son would get a double portion, Joseph, like his father Jacob before him, went empty-handed. He didn't take anything from his brothers. He didn't take anything from his father. And yet the Lord had chosen him for the birthright blessings. And so the Lord, in fact, while Joseph was in Egypt, did bestow those blessings upon him. In other words, everything that Joseph touched magnified, blossomed. Um, those birthright blessings didn't come in the way that we might imagine in terms of getting freed from prison, um, you know, having everything given to him. But instead, Joseph, by holding firm to his covenant promises, you know, he would not partake in the lifestyle of the Egyptians. Uh, the Lord blessed him in the work that he did, and everything that he touched did really well. In fact, it was Joseph's interpretation of the dream, Pharaoh's dream, that led to being able to not only save the Egyptian people from famine, but also then his own brothers and the family of Israel. So the belief is, is that 
even as Joseph in Egypt saved his family without rancor, without bitterness. When he does reveal himself to his brothers, he says, don't hold this against yourselves that you sold me. Uh, don't berate yourselves over this. This was God's plan. God sent me ahead of you to save you alive. And um, at that time that he revealed himself, there were many tears and, and a lot of healing amongst those brothers. And it's important to note at that time, Judah's role, because remember, it was Judah who had sold Joseph to save him in the first place from, from being murdered. But at the time in Egypt, Joseph gave his brothers a test. And the test was that he put his cup into his brother Benjamin's bag and then claimed that it had been stolen mm -hmm. and that whoever had stolen the cup, whoever whoever uh, possessed the cup would then have to become his servant or his slave for all time. And it was a test. He wanted to see how much had his brothers really changed. And uh, in fact, then when the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, they're all beside themselves. And the person who offered himself as a ransom instead of Benjamin, who said, take me, I'll stay with you, I'll be your servant, was Judah. Yeah, Judah, yep, absolutely. And so it begins to show there this unique relationship between the two. Yes. That, yes. Ca that carries down through the scriptures to today. I just want to mention that, as we know, we you know, in the studies that we've had for Come Follow Me this last week, we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews, the, what's called the Day of Provocation. And most scholars believe that's at least three events that come under that provocation. But one of them being that when uh, the Lord had sent um, a representative from each of the tribes of Israel into the land of Canaan to say, okay, it's time for us to go in, um, that they came back uh, these representatives came back, one from each tribe, and said, it's impossible. There are giants living there. We can't do it. But there were two, two of the tribal members who said, oh, no, we can do this. And and the Lord rewarded them and praised them. Now, they were, do you know who they were? Oh, Joshua, Joshua and Caleb. Okay, yes. Now, the interesting thing is Joshua is an Ephraimite, and Caleb is from Judah. Mm -hmm. And so... We see this pattern. Uh, there are many, many, many examples I can cite in the, that are in the book, but we see the pattern where these two, Ephraim representing Joseph and Judah, come forward as leaders in Israel, in specifically in these times, in a beautiful unity. And in fact, then uh, when the land grants are given, Moses had received revelation as to how the land should be divided and had shared that with Joshua. The very first to receive the land grant was Judah, Judah mm -hmm. under Caleb. The second to receive a land grant was Ephraim, Ephraim. and Manasseh. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they were given the choicest lands in the holiest cities uh, within the land of Canaan. And for a time, they worked together uh, beautifully until uh, we see uh, well, I should backtrack and not move so quickly, but we see King David, uh, who is from Judah, who really starts to fulfill the promise that had been given to Judah about that the kings of Israel would come through Judah's line. Uh, David was a great warrior, 
Saul was the first king of united Israel, and Saul was from Benjamin, but there was still a lot of, of fighting, and Saul uh, kind of lost the spirit of the Lord and wasn't following uh, the covenant uh, declarations that the Lord had given in order to possess the land. And then uh, David is anointed to become the next king. And the important part to understand about David, uh, who is tribe of Judah, is that David from the beginning saw in his mind a united Israel that would be united under God, not united by right of arms. If you remember that King Saul was chosen because he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He looked really good. And the people said, well, he will look really great leading us out to war. <laughs> but David said, what needs to unite us is to be one people under God with the Ark of the Covenant within the tabernacle in the center of our worship, in the center of our land as a people. And David had this great desire to build a temple. And this is the reason why I think that David was so successful as a king, is that he didn't look to bring power unto himself or unite the people by his winning personality, but he wanted to unite the people under God. And this is one of the strengths then that we might see of the tribe of Judah, with a number of exceptions, but in general, uh, this sense of uniting people under God uh, with the temple at the center. Uh, of the kingdom. And so, uh, unfortunately, David's son Solomon, in order to uh, make political alliances, uh, married outside of the covenant and married many wives and allowed them to bring their own gods into not only the land of Israel, but we read in the scriptures that Solomon allowed them to bring their idols into the temple itself. Yes. And so the Lord started to pull his hand away from the covenant blessings that come with keeping our covenants of the protection of the Lord. And um, Solomon's son Rehoboam uh, was determined to, uh, to be an even more difficult king than his father had been. And when it came time for Rehoboam to take over ruling all of Israel, Rehoboam made a promise to the people that if they thought they had been taxed heavily under his father, they hadn't seen anything yet. Then we have a man, Jeroboam, who's an Ephraimite from the tribe of Joseph, who says to all the rest of the people, hey, what are we going to get from Judah? What inheritance do we have with Judah? Mm -hmm. And he says, to your tents, all of Israel, we're leaving Judah on their own. And Jeroboam goes back home to the north, and um, the capital city of the north was Samaria, and he sets up his capital there. And in order, as he says, to make it so it's not so hard for people to make the journey down to the temple for worship, because this was part of being covenant Israel, to go to the temple for seven holy feast days a year, present themselves at the temple and make their sacrifices and offerings. Jeroboam, right from the very first day, set up a calf at the north of his kingdom and a calf at the south of his kingdom, called them Jehovah, and said, here are your gods, Israel. Mm -hmm. So in reality, Ephraim and, Ephraim and Judah broke the tribes together in terms of Rehoboam with his harshness, his forgetfulness about what is Israel meant to be, 
and uh, Jeroboam with his desire to retain his own power. And after that, Judah and Ephraim fought continuously, fought against each other. The ten tribes whose leader was Ephraim were carried away captive and quote-unquote lost. Judah remained uh, down in uh, Jerusalem with lots of challenges going on. And uh, we have had divided Israel from that time. And it's time for us to heal Israel. And that's something that uh, Joseph Smith was very, very intent upon doing, very intent upon the recognition that there were 12 tribes that made up the family of covenant Israel and how important that they should be gathered from the very beginning of his ministry. And he called out specifically to Judah of those tribes. Of those tribes, he said, this breach has to be healed and, and Judah has to be healed. They have been conquered, have been scattered and suffered much. And um, we can talk in a few minutes if you want to about how he did that. But even today, our prophet, President Nelson, has told us the most important work we can be engaged in is the gathering of Israel on both mm -hmm. sides of the veil. Well, according to the scriptures, for that to be fully successful, Judah and Joseph have to unite in that work again. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that's really what this book is, is particularly about, is just kind of tracing the lineage of both tribes, the responsibility of both tribes, the experience of both tribes, uh, the reaching out specifically from Joseph Smith to those who are called the Jews, uh, the Book of Mormon's role in calling us uh, to remember the Jews in that gathering. And uh, and then also uh, in the book, uh, it's recorded that I had come across uh, something that just uh, literally touched my heart so much. And every time I think about it, I still weep, is that in 1830, the same year that the church was formed, there were a group of rabbis who had gathered together in Jerusalem and who had felt that the time for the gathering, the time for the preparation for the Messiah had come through their reading of the scriptures and the teachings of the rabbis. They had come to the conclusion that there must be someone amongst the 10 tribes. And as they wrote, probably someone from Joseph who had keys keys that could help them, they use this term, have the ordination. Yeah. And that with those keys of ordination, that the gathering could begin. And they sent that letter throughout Europe by a messenger um, looking for these people of the 10 tribes who might have this authority to come and help them. And that messenger went throughout Europe with his letter for two years until he was killed. Now, Joseph Smith never knew about them, and they never knew about Joseph Smith. Yeah. Well, but the, God knew. Yeah, God yeah, knew. Yeah, the Lord knew. Now, you've got uh, 26 chapters, and <clears throat> you've just done an excellent job. Basically, uh, these chapters are not long, but they it, it's in chronological order, basically. And so you, you build from the very beginning of who is Israel. And finally, in the last chapter, you say, it's actually the title of the book. It says, um, Judah and Joseph reunited the hope of Israel. Now, 
The Hope of Israel, we all know the hymn, and when I think of the Hope of Israel, I think of Jesus Christ. You're exactly right, and in fact, I wrote that, the hope of Israel is Jesus Christ. The hope for Israel is for Joseph and Judah and their descendants to come to themselves and to work together to perform this work. Yes, and so you actually sum it up there in chapter 26 of how they, they are going to be reunited. Very good. I think it's an excellent book. If people want to know the history, I mean, you've documented it very well. Um, there was several sections um, that I, I highlighted here. Um, you talk about the father Abraham in one paragraph. This is on page six. The faith passed from parent to child is crucial to our understanding of the formation of Israel as the covenant family. The Lord praised Abraham, saying, and then you have a quote from that. And the idea that faith is passed from parent to child. I, yes, this is so important. I love that part in the book of Genesis when um, Abraham had asked the Lord, how do I know you're going to keep these covenants with me? And in essence, sort of, why have you chosen me? And the Lord says, because I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. The Lord had such confidence and trust in Abraham's confidence and trust in the covenant. And in fact, Abraham was so diligent in that. So one, I've been told, I, 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 I've never been able to verify it, but I've been told that uh, Brigham Young once said, the Lord doesn't have any grandchildren. He has children. Um, if that's true from Brigham Young or not, I, I really like the quote, because while Abraham did teach Isaac his son, and Isaac taught his sons Jacob and Esau, it's really important that we see in the scriptures that each of those individuals came to their own uh, understanding and relationship with the Lord and then renewed that Abrahamic covenant or the new and everlasting covenant with the Lord themselves. But yes, this idea that we are going to teach our children what the covenant is, this covenant that's come down from the fathers and the mothers through all time is so important to our understanding. And I noticed that in our last general conferences, the last two general conferences, there's been quite an emphasis on the importance of what kind of culture are we building in our families? And uh, are we teaching our families these important covenant truths? Are we teaching our children what it means to be children of the covenant? I love that President Nelson in particular has really underscored this for us when he talks about what to what should we understand about our identity, that we are children of God, that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, and that we are children of the covenant. You know, and what does that mean? Uh, I taught seminary and institute uh, for probably 15 years altogether and would often talk to uh, my students about what did they understand uh, about what it meant to be children of the covenant? And what does it mean to be a covenant people? Well, it's very important. Now, as you said, President Nelson have talked about it, and um, <clears throat> there's been other authors writing about this um, that I've interviewed, and it's very important. Now, I also want to point out about the book, for those that might be interested, you've got some great charts here. I'm looking at it. Um, uh, you talk about the meaning of the name, like Reuben means sea or sun. Having lived in Israel for four years myself, I've learned that the, the Hebrew, the, the, 
what that name means has a lot of insight. And so you've done that. And then in that chart, the, the next column over is patriarchal blessing, how that figures in, the land allotment, and then um, events. And that, goes, that, that covers all of the children of, of Judah. And so um, I, I, I think the chart is very, very helpful for those that when we get back to teaching the Old Testament, <laughs> that uh, it's a very handy chart for people. For example, <clears throat> Ephraim is uh, fruitful. And we know that uh, we talk about the, um, the boughs going over the well, the, the vines. And so, um, it's, and so you, these are wonderful charts here that, that, that you have. And I think that and then you've got um, uh, a chart on Joseph and Jesus Christ, uh, the different um, uh, events that happen in their life and how they, they, they correlate. So I, I think the book is an excellent resource for those that really want to understand more about the covenant. Oh, thank you, Richard. That means so much to me. Thank you. So this book is available on Cedar Fort, obviously, but it's also uh, Zoom. And I didn't check, but is it available uh, digitally on Zoom? Now, do you mean Amazon? Yeah, I'm sorry, Amazon. Yes. Yeah. It is on Amazon in both uh, paperback, Kindle, and also Audible. Okay. And I apologize to anybody listening. I don't like my own voice. No. Okay. That, so, okay. So you're making the one, an so, so you're the making one an audible it. version is is <laughs> a lot more of a challenge than I imagined. Yes. Well, yes. It, it's hard to be a good reader. It, 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 it's difficult. It is, and then I think it's also hard for the editor as well. So, for example, um, I have little subtitles and. Uh, so I would leave a little space while I was reading after the subtitle, but the editor took those spaces out. So it sounds rather like a school teacher <laughs> uh, if you listen to it now, because the subtitle is run into the run into the uh, following paragraphs. But well, just out of curiosity, how long did it take you to record it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure because I actually recorded all of my books one after another. Uh, it's sort of a fun experience because. I recorded it in a closet. I received, you know, the sort of instructions and information how to do it. So I had pillows uh, on the closet wall from the floor to the ceiling with my microphone, you know, sort of lodged between the pillows. And yeah. and uh, it, I, I know I did it in the summer and it was fairly warm in the closet with, mm. where there's no air conditioning vent. But it was an interesting experience. I'll try to do better the next time. <laughs> well, you do have other books. What are those titles? Well, the first book that I wrote that actually took me about 40 years to write is called The Redemption of the Bride, God's Redeeming Love for His Covenant People. And uh, that book is about, it's really about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, it specifically addresses the title that he refers to himself as the bridegroom. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, that that title always kind of got my attention. I could definitely see him as the shepherd of Israel and the lion of Judah and so forth. But the bridegroom, you know, that was, that was an interesting that I really wanted to explore. And so um, my studies are in ancient Near Eastern studies and in, in studying ancient culture and marriage traditions. I came to see how much uh, Jesus, who is Jehovah of the Old Testament, 
really did fulfill all of those sort of ancient rituals of of inviting the bride into the covenant using a friend of the bridegroom who was Moses and then bestowing gifts on the bride to help her to prepare for the wedding day. Those gifts, as I propose in that book, are are the temple or the tabernacle in, in the early days, um, the um, garments of the priesthood and uh, the law or the covenant, the new and everlasting covenant. And, um, you know, it was very intriguing to me to know why does he use that title? And, and I came to the understanding and realization is that um, when he describes his people as leaving him, uh, he says, you know, I've gone days without number of caring for them and, and they have left me. Uh, that only a relationship that was as close and intimate as a bride and a bridegroom could help us to understand just how devastating and how painful that was for him. But at the same time, as he points out in the book of Isaiah, he's not like any other man. He says, any other man would divorce his wife for, for such a thing as what my people have done, going after false gods and leaving me. He says, but I'm not like any other man. And in fact, then he goes on to say that he will drink the cup of justice in behalf of his bride. He will he will spill his own blood. He will give his own life for the redemption of his bride, who is the church or Israel mm-hmm. and any one of the covenant family, that he will um, give his, his all. He will redeem them at the price of his own blood and that his love is so great. Then as you take it through all of the scriptures and and down to John's revelation in the book of Re- in the book of Revelation, where John records seeing into heaven at the great marriage supper and the reunion of the bridegroom who is Jesus Christ to his bride, and and it says, "And the spirit and the bride say, come." And it just moves me so deeply to understand the long, long time it has taken for our Savior to to gather us and to um, teach us and to heal and reclaim us. And that his ultimate goal is our redemption and our reunion with him and our father. Absolutely. And as I saw, I didn't read the book, but as I saw the title of the book, I said, this is about the covenant. And um, yes. Now you have two other titles. They are? The Feasts and Festivals of the Messiah. Okay. This is about the ancient feast days. Uh, we readily know, um, like uh, Passover and Day of Atonement, we might recognize those. Uh, there are seven feast days anciently. Uh, it's understood that the spring feasts testified of the first coming of the Messiah and that the fall feasts testify of his second coming, uh, each referring to different characteristics and roles that he plays for us. But also very interesting that those feasts seem to be evident in the Book of Mormon, uh, for example, that King um, Benjamin's speech uh, is following exactly a script that is part of what takes place on the Feast of Tabernacles, where the king stands on a podium and gives an account of his stewardship under God and then uh, reads the covenant to all of the people and asks them to renew their covenant. But even more so interesting in terms of the church today, that Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith on the Feast of Trumpets. And the Feast of Trumpets signifies, wake up world, the Messiah is about to come. 
And um, and I should emphasize that, uh, as you know, that Maron and I took, uh, took uh, Joseph to the hill each year, but happened to be on the Feast of Trumpets that uh, Joseph was able to retrieve the plates from the Hill Cumorah. And the Book of Mormon is certainly a sign and an instrument of that promised gathering that was to take place that is uh, foreshadowed by the Feast of Trumpets. And then um, Elijah the prophet came to the Kirtland Temple on Passover, as had been prophesied. And then our, our general conferences usually take place during the spring and fall feast days. So yeah. these holidays are clearly important to the Lord. And it's fun to it's fun to dive a little bit into them and and maybe get a little deeper understanding. He uses lots of tools to teach us of his principles, even as Jesus is the shepherd of Israel and he's the bridegroom mm -hmm. and he's the stumbling stone. He uses lots of different ways to try and help us to understand the plan of salvation. Yes. And those ancient feast days and their symbols are, are part of that. Uh, and then interestingly enough, we're told in the scriptures that in the millennium, we'll keep both the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Yes, and having lived in Israel, those feasts are celebrated. <laughs> and I got to know them quite well. And um, it was always interesting. Uh, it was always big events. And it was time off from work and everything to, to be involved in those celebrations. Now, the third book is... It's a Passover script for Christian families. Now, that, and I, it, that I found interesting because <clears throat> my wife and I used to do Passover for the ward. That was years ago. And um, have the Haggadah and all of that. <clears throat> but what caught my attention is that this is the Passover for Christians. And so what's that about? Well, great. Um, again, back to General Conference of the last few years. How wonderful it's been that uh, Elder um, Jeffrey Holland and Elder Gong and others have pointed out that um, Jesus' institution of the sacrament actually took place during a Passover meal, and that uh, Jesus used the Passover emblems to institute the sacrament and to help his apostles and any who had loved and celebrated the Passover previously to help them to understand how those emblems testified of him. It's easy for us to see that he's the Lamb of God and that he is the bread of life and that he is the living water and that he spilled his blood in our behalf. Um, but um, as we know, our Jewish brothers, um, and again, we're going back to the Judah and Joseph book, uh, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet they do love and honor the Passover as not only a past deliverance, but the hope of a future deliverance. And so the Passover script for Christian families takes a, sort of a conglomeration of, you know, there are more than 2,000 different forms of Passover scripts. So it's sort of uh, ones that I brought together with trying to get as sort of basic as I could. Uh, in terms of what Jesus might have been following with his apostles. And it has commentary about that specific night with his apostles and his disciples and about what might be happening amongst them. And then it also includes commentary from Elder Talmadge and Elder McConkie and about what they taught 
about that specific night. And so it helps the the participant to really come to a, a little deeper understanding of what those symbols represent. But also, you know, for example, there's a part of the Passover um, event um, that really pretty much everyone still includes in their Passover Seder or Haggadah today, and that's where the youngest son will would say something like, what makes this night mm-hmm. different than all other nights? That's just a, a, a very common part of the Passover ritual. And yet, if we kind of step back and we think, okay, who might, if they're following the ritual, and it, and it does appear in many ways that they were following the ritual, um, who might have been that youngest? We know that John... Uh, John the Beloved was the youngest apostle. What might it have been like if they actually were following the script? And if he had said, if he was the one that said, what makes this night different than any other night? Mm -hmm. And then we think about what then later happened when Jesus arose from the table and went into the garden. And there began the atonement by sweating blood from every pore of his body it just really helps us to have so much of a deep witness and testimony of how how precious the sacrament, or as uh, many call it, the communion is, but also the Passover. What you know? What was it that made it so important that the Lord commanded that His followers, His children, by the way. The commandment was given to all of the tribes of Israel at Mount Sinai and any stranger who wanted to participate. Um, you know, why did the Lord command them to do that every year? Uh, why does he command us to partake of the sacrament every week so that we can remember these important events? And I can only imagine what it was like for the apostles. For example, that uh, each of the cups had its own name. Uh, based on the promise of deliverance from Egypt. And uh, most scholars believe that it was with what's called the third cup or the cup of redemption that Jesus instituted the sacrament. Again, if you're the apostle who has said these words over this cup year after year after year, and suddenly you have the Messiah in front of you saying, now with this cup, from now on, you're to remember my blood that's been shed for you. No wonder their testimonies were so fervent, so deep, and so full that they could never deny, de- despite the amount of persecution that they received. Yes, excellent. Well, again, thank you. Um, all those books are available on everything we've already mentioned, and um, even audio. <laughs> so, and uh, thank you for your time in making that audio because I know a lot of people enjoy listening to books as they're driving or as they're walking and exercising. Well, thank you for your time this morning. What's the weather like there? In, uh, uh, <laughs> what would you guess, Richard? Uh, <laughs> we rain? Have, we have a certain <laughs> reputation. We have a certain <laughs> reputation. Uh, it's overcast at the moment. Yesterday was a bright and glorious day of 51 degrees. But oh, wow. uh, it's overcast this morning and, and kind of looks like we're going to live up to our reputation yes, as well. Yes, have some rain. Well, may, may, may I close with just yes. one thing I yes. wanted to share that it hit me really hard um, and really kind of combines all of these things is that in regard to this unification of Judah and Joseph, I want to go to Ezekiel 37, 
where Ezekiel has a vision of dead, dry bones. bones yes. And um, and the Lord identifies that those dead, dry bones are the house of Israel. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, do you think I can bring them to life again? And, and Ezekiel, in essence, is sort of like a Nephi, well, you can do anything. Mm. And, and uh, the Lord then says, here's how he's going to bring them to life. That's when he tells uh, Ezekiel, take the stick of Judah and his brothers and write upon it, and then take the stick of Joseph and his brothers and write upon it, and they'll be one in thine hand. So the testimony there is for Israel to come back to life again, for Israel to be gathered, for Israel to come to themselves. This is all of the tribes of Israel and all who want to participate in Israel. Again, doesn't have anything to do with DNA or bloodline. In order for them to come to life, these two brothers, Judah and Joseph, as represented in that case by their writings of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, they have to become one in the hand. They have to, we have to have respect for both and what each has to offer. We wouldn't have the Bible. We wouldn't have Jesus Christ, who is from the tribe of Judah, without the Jews. And the Jews, for the most part, of all the tribes of Israel, they're the only ones remembering that they're covenant Israel. They're mm -hmm. the only ones. And they have been lost and scattered and and going through terrible um, hardship that we can't even begin to imagine, and it's happening again today. Um, and Joseph, we have, as you mentioned earlier, the fruitful bow. You know, we, we have the blessings, the fruitfulness. We have the fullness of the gospel. We have the ordinances of the temple. We have that priesthood that those rabbis were looking for in 1830. And we've got we've got to reach out to our brothers, and we've got to unite with them with respect, right? Respect with what they have. In other words, no one's going to listen if you come up and say you've been so wrong, and we've got it all, and we're going to teach you. Mm -hmm. But instead of a sense of gratitude, you're my brother, the same way that Joseph and Judah acted in Egypt so long ago. You're my brother, and I am so grateful for you and what you have that you have brought to the table, so to speak, that you have brought to bless Israel. Now let's work together. Well, thank you for that last comment. And you have a great day. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for this time with you. Okay, we have a moment of silence. I'm going to... Linda's books are available at cedarfort.com, deseretbooks.com, and of course, on Amazon. Your support means the world to us, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give it a thumbs up and share your uplifting comments. By doing so, you will help others discover this podcast and join our growing community of listeners. Lastly, don't forget to explore the other podcast I host, The Busy Latter-day Saint. In each episode, I have the privilege of interviewing incredible members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from all around the world who share their personal experiences and unique insights on Scripture study. The podcast is scripturally uplifting and a treasure trove of different approaches to studying the Scriptures.